Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. This episode, we follow Randolph Carter to Unknown Kadath itself and the conclusion of his dream quest. Taking him long enough to get there. It sure has. Before we get into all that epic stuff, what is going on? Well, I hear the stars are coming right again, folks. Issue 9 in the Blasphemous Tome is in production, due for release at the end of June. This is the reward that we put out for our wonderful Patreon backers. So if you aren't familiar with Patreon, this is the sort of virtual tip jar which keeps the podcast going. And... In addition to some of the other rewards that we offer, like the uncut version of the show that goes out on the Patreon feed, we also do this fanzine twice a year that we issue to all our backers as either a PDF or a printed publication. Do check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. And this upcoming issue, like most of the others, has a full Call of Cthulhu scenario in it, this time from our own Paul Fricker. And also, I recently put out a video which shows off the new HPLHS Call of Cthulhu prop set. This prop set is a big, fat cardboard box full of goodness to celebrate Call of Cthulhu's 40th anniversary. Chaosium did a, a Kickstarter to republish the original rulebook and like four or five scenario collections and supplements. This set has got like 94 props in it. Watch the video. It's quite a mind-boggling uh, array of things, as you'd expect from the HPLHS. Like a massive newspaper, broadsheet newspaper in there. And all the handouts that are newsprint are on that one newspaper. So you just cut, it's got directions for each scenario, which bit you cut out to give to your players. Wow. Like I'm going to cut anything up when I use that. Yeah, I did think that. <laughs> I mean, you can still keep them, but you do have to sort of dissect the newspaper a bit. And lots of, a multitude of other very authentic feeling period handouts, which are marvellous. And as well as appearing on video, you've also been guesting on a podcast. Is that right, Paul? Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of appearing again on Frankenstein's RPG podcast. And series two is looking for body parts from existing RPGs that can be stitched together to form the ultimate science fiction role-playing game. And episode four that I was on was about initiative and combat, and each guest nominates a subsystem from an existing RPG, and then we vote on it on the show, and that goes forward to Dave's Frankenstein science fiction RPG. That sounds very sinister. <laughs> it was quite fun, yeah. Although I heard his name's actually Frankenstein, but I think that's up for debate. And now on to our main topic, the dream quest of unknown Kadath, part five. Well, when we last left Randolph Carter, he had just convinced his ghoulish friends to call upon the Lightgaunts and carry them all through the air to Kadath, so he can culminate his dream quest. Surely nothing can go wrong with this plan. You know, it's going to be a really short episode if there's nothing. He just turns up and that's it. Yep, and they all lived happily ever after. Hey. Anyway, at midday, 
The whole shocking army of ghouls and night ghouls, led by Carter and Pikmin, rises in a nightmare cloud. They head upwards until even the tableland of Leng grows small beneath them. Sweeping bat-like over the sterile landscape, they pass the feeble fires of the unwholesome stone villages at a great altitude. That'd do wonders for my vertigo. <laughs> the whole section of this journey that's getting them to Kadath. Yeah, if you got any kind of fear of flying or of heights or whatever, this isn't the trip for you. Or if you don't like being tickled, because I'm sure the night gods can't help themselves. <laughs> it is dusk by the time they reach the jagged grey peaks that form the barrier of Ingenok. There they meet more night gaunts from the caves who unfortunately know nothing of Kadath as so few people seem to do. I <laughs> know. There's a reason why they call it Unknown Kadath. Yeah. But these local nightgaunts do at least have some advice. And following this advice, the party avoid Leng's northward reaches, which are full of unseen pitfalls that even the nightgaunts dislike, abysmal influences centering in certain white hemispherical buildings on curious knolls, which common folklore associates unpleasantly with the other gods and their crawling chaos Nyarlathotep. This put me in mind somewhat of the City of the Elder Things from At the Magic's Madness, which Lovecraft would write a few years later. I do wonder how much of the imagery from this, particularly seeing as this was never published in his lifetime, mm. he did consciously reuse in The Magic's Madness. The party continue north, dropping below the phosphorescent night clouds. There's a good image, clouds that glow. Yes. Again, great for trying to sleep in that night. <laughs> they see the terrible carved mountains ahead, sinister, wolf-like, and double-headed, with faces of fury and right hands raised. Shantaks arise from their laps, but these flee with insane titters when they spot the night gaunts. The night gaunts fly onward, covering such prodigious spaces that Carter wonders whether or not they could still be within Earth's dreamland. The travellers realise something huge is moving alongside them, blotting out the stars. At first, they believe it to be a particularly monstrous Shantak. Then Carter sees a huge mitred head, or pair of heads, infinitely magnified, and its rapid bobbing flight through the sky seems most peculiarly a wingless one. Finally, Carter sees the full form in a gap between peaks. The mammoth bobbing shape that overtopped the ridge was only a head, a mitred double head, and below it in terrible vastness loped the frightful swollen body that bore it. The mountain-high monstrosity that walked in stealth and silence, the hyena-like distortion of a great anthropoid shape that trotted blackly against the sky, its repulsive pair of cone-capped heads reaching halfway to the zenith. So what are these things? I mean, these are really weird. They are. I mean, obviously, these are the mountains that he's been seeing earlier that we were introduced to uh, ooh, several scenes back that were carved and looked really sinister. But they're not mountains. They're getting up and they're walking around. And why have they got two heads? Is one head not enough? I mean, it's just, it's just adding weirdness on top of weirdness. That Not only are they these freaking massive giant 
mountain-sized things, but, you know, they've got to have two heads. Well, I did wonder, because later we are introduced to, spoiler alert, Nyarlathotep, who is wearing a Bashent, or however the fuck you pronounce it. This is a hat, a ceremonial headdress that... I don't know whether you'd describe it as double-mitred, but it basically has two layers to it, two peaks representing two dynasties of Egypt. I wonder whether these double-mitred heads are meant to be reflections of that Bashent, and that what we're seeing here is potentially some manifestation of Nialathotep. Maybe? It seems like a huge coincidence to describe them as being double-mitred and then to introduce this two-tiered hat later on. Yeah, I mean, we see this motif, if you like, with the men of Leng as well, with their kind of double horns. Well, horns are often come in pairs, but yeah, they've got these two humps under their turbans. There's the bit that leapt out for me is that it's just that description of the mountain that walked, very much yeah. how he describes Cthulhu. Mm. So, yeah, again, it's uh, another recurring theme that comes to mind is something so vast, something so huge. Yeah, but with Cthulhu, it was a mountain walked or stumbled. And here, mm -hmm. they seem to be more nimble than that, almost upsettingly so. I love the image of these things moving silently through the mountains. He describes them as tiptoeing, which is just weird. <laughs> these huge mountain-like creatures tiptoeing. Carter oppresses his terror, which is all the harder when he realises that there are three of these forms tiptoeing through the mountains. Pickman commands the Nightgorns to fly upwards to safety. Now, because these things haven't got much of a reach, they can't just go straight through the clouds, probably being that tall. <laughs> From there, they pass through a realm of eternal night. Carter wonders how they can travel so fast over the landscape, but muses that in the land of dream, dimensions have strange properties. Hmm. I like this from a gaming point of view because it is sometimes difficult to make long travel scenes interesting in a game. Oh, you know, you do get some games that really try to bring it to life, like The One Ring, where it's a core mechanic. But from a gaming perspective, I like the fact that here in the Dreamlands, you've got an excuse to fast forward through the boring stuff. You're just traveling so fast across the landscape that it's all a blur, and then you get somewhere interesting. Hmm. A strong and unnatural headwind builds, such that the night gaunts merely have to glide. Ahead, Carter spies a massive dark shape with a light atop it, which he deduces to be a vast mountain with a pale and sinister beacon. Even the ghouls meep in wonder at the sight of it. As they get closer, Carter sees that the mountain is topped by horrible domed towers in noxious and incalculable tiers and clusters beyond any dreamable workmanship of man. Surely this is the incredible home of the Great Ones atop unknown Kadath, so large that a man on its threshold would stand even as an ant on the steps of Earth's loftiest fortress. Again, this does seem a bit like some of the imagery in At the Mountains of Madness. Winds sweep over the voyagers through a great gate and into the castle. They tumble through sightless labyrinths of onyx, becoming separated. Swept and herded by nightmare tempests from the stars and dogged by unseen horrors of the northern waste, 
All that army floated captive and helpless in the lurid light, dropping numbly to the onyx floor, when by some voiceless order the winds of fright dissolved. Carter finds himself alone in a room filled with lurid light, realising that its window was the beacon he saw earlier. Carter deduces that his plan to arrive in the throne room with poise and dignity, flanked by his monstrous guard, have failed completely. Yes, where are all these ghouls when you need them? And night gaunts. Yes, he's <laughs> there all on his own. The GM giveth with one hand and taketh away with the other. Yep. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how this would actually work in a game. I guess in something like a Powered by the Apocalypse game, there is that classic GM move or MC move of separating the party. And it sort of feels a bit like that. But here, I guess if it were Call of Cthulhu, this might be a fumbled roll or a failed push attempt or something like that, that whatever role Carter was making to try to turn up and make as powerful an impression as possible, he is utterly bollocked up here. Well, it's almost like he's beamed into the room um, by Nell Arthatep, who we're about to meet. He's outside and then he's inside. He's been swept in on the wind and landed. This is the wind that's brought them all through the corridors of the castle and sent them all off in different directions, and he's landed in this room. But he's been perhaps purposefully separated by Nell Arthatep, mm. what this means. He had that custom skill of make a grand entrance at 90% and still manages to roll the 99 or 100. <laughs> Worse still, Carter can see no trace of the gods of Earth he had hoped to petition. This does not mean he is alone, however. Where the mild gods are absent, the other gods are not unrepresented. And certainly, the onyx castle of castles was far from tenantless. Carter fears that Nialathotep himself lies in wait. Carter is shaken from his reverie by trumpet blasts, first discordant, then a fanfare that echoed all the wonder and melody of ethereal dream. These are accompanied by the odour of incense and a golden light. Columns of gold-adorned slaves file in, carrying crystal wands and blowing trumpets. Yeah, this is really quite a spectacle. Hmm especially in what appeared to be an empty, vast, spooky castle before then, and suddenly everything is rather lovely. A tall, slim figure enters between two columns of slaves. He has the young face of an antique pharaoh, gay with prismatic robes and crowned with a golden svent that glows with inherent light. His proud carriage and swart features have in them the fascination of a dark god or fallen archangel, and around his eyes lurk the languid sparkle of capricious humour. I find it, find it interesting here we have a lot of reference to Egyptian things, or, or we can read that in. I mean, certainly mm. we've got Pharaoh and those big stone things in the mountains, while they're not really depicted as sphinxes, it puts me in mind of those a little bit for some reason. And... It's also the fact the guy's named Carter, because I went to an exhibition in Oxford mm. recently, which is titled Tutankhamun, Anatomy of an Excavation. And it's about Howard Carter finding Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of Kings in 1922. Because I've always, in my mind, overlapped Howard Carter and Randolph Carter. But I don't think Randolph Carter is inspired by Howard Carter, because Lovecraft writes about Randolph Carter in, I think... 
1919 or 17 first time whereas carter doesn't really whereas the real world carter doesn't really come to prominence until 1922 but i mean he's a massive figure once he does and he i think he goes on tours around america giving talks and uh, his name is known worldwide so i wonder if perhaps lovecraft does conflate randolph carter with howard some aspects of howard carter a bit yeah, I'd not put the two and two together until then, but yeah, it kind of makes sense because you've got Narthotep has, even since the original story or prose poem that Lovecraft wrote, there was the line of he came well, once from inner Egypt, mm. that there was always been that Egyptian and outer god connection between the two. So yeah, it certainly seems plausible that Lovecraft would have got a rift on the bandwagon and finally put the two together. Obviously, the... Egyptian side of Nialathotep, or more properly Nialathotep, was there from the beginning. It's in the name, it's in Lovecraft's original dream that birthed the character. So this is just continuing that imagery through to this latest incarnation. As you mentioned, Paul, I, I just checked and Lovecraft had written about Randolph Carter in, for example, the statement of Randolph Carter in 1920. So, I mean, obviously the name at least was there before then. I'd argue that the Egyptian imagery here owes a lot more to his reuse of Nyarlathotep than, than to Carter. I think it probably reinforced his feeling for the character because you've got, mm. he is a kind of a, almost like an analogue of Lovecraft in the stories, isn't oh, yeah. it, Randolph Carter? And then you get Howard Carter, who is a kind of real-life adventurer, and he's got the name Carter, and he's got the name Howard, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. <laughs> I can't but think that that character, Howard Carter, must have resonated with Lovecraft to some degree. Not not necessarily a big influence, but it must have been like, oh, wow, this is interesting. You know, there's this guy doing all this stuff. Particularly with his interest in archaeology, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. This strange young man greets Carter by name and tells him of others who have attempted similar quests and failed. He praises Carter, saying, You came not as one curious, but as one seeking his due, nor have you failed ever in reverence toward the mild gods of earth. Sadly, the figure tells him, the gods of earth have not only deserted Carter, but taken his dream city for themselves abandoning Kadath. He came all that way, and they've moved out. <laughs> I'm sorry, Randolph, but our gods are in another castle. The gods love your marvellous city, and walk no more in the ways of the gods. They have forgotten the high places of earth, and the mountains that knew their youth. The earth has no longer any gods that are gods, and only the other ones from outer space hold sway on unremembered Kadath. Far away in a valley of your own childhood, Randolph Carter, play the heedless great ones. You have dreamt too well. <laughs> I do like that. This figure informs Carter that the gods' abolition of duty means that other, less wholesome gods have taken their place. It is Carter's duty to send these drowsy, truant gods back to Kadath, where they belong. The young man tells Carter his city can be found back over well-known years, back to the bright strange things of infancy and the quick sun-drenched glimpses of magic 
that old scenes brought to wide young eyes. Carter's Dream City, of course, is an amalgamation of idyllic childhood memories of cities that he knew from his youth, such as Boston, Salem, Marblehead, and especially Providence. These, Randolph Carter, are your city, for they are yourself. New England bore you, and into your soul she poured a liquid loveliness which cannot die. So, this does seem to be an echo of what we saw with King Karanis earlier, where he, living on in the dreamlands, had rebuilt, uh, or at least restructured, large parts of the dreamlands into the Cornwall of his youth. Mm. So Carter seems to have done this, or created this city and the dreamlands in exactly the same way, but without realising it, just unconsciously. And this is why he is Randolph Carter, not King Carter. But on the other hand, King Karanis had to do this as an act of will over a great period of time, and (laughs) Carter just seems to have kind of accidentally shat out this city. Yeah, but he doesn't know where it is, and if he took so long finding Kadath, how the hell do you think he's going to find his own city? And he's only formally glimpsed it, has he? Like a few times, glimpsed it from afar. Well, no, he's visited it three times. Was it visited? Yeah. Again, it makes it even worse that he's even been there and he still can't remember where it is. Dreams are like that. The figure warns Carter that while the stars above his city are beautiful, the gulfs between them hold pounding, clawing horrors of the void that would shatter Carter's mind. Starting Carter on his journey, the figure calls for a slave, made invisible to preserve Carter's sanity, to help him onto a shantak. Here we go, you know something bad's going to happen when he gets one one of those poor things again. He tells Carter to steer for Vega, the brightest star just south of the zenith, and he will arrive in his city within hours. Carter must, however, beware if he hears music among the stars. Why does he have to make the slave invisible? They're putting <laughs> him on this freaking monstrous shantak. I mean, of all the things Carter's seen, you know. That must be one hell of a weird-looking slave, then. Yeah. The GM knows that he's got a massive sand check potentially coming up right round the corner. <laughs> so it's this one chance for him to be slightly kind of generous and go, here, I'll save you the one sanity check. You've got a big one coming. Once he arrives at the city, the figure tells him, Carter must remind the Great Ones of their home and their youth until they are moved to return to Gadath. The Shantak will help in this, although it has no powers of persuasion. How is the Shantak going to help? I just love the idea of this Shantak hype man just kind of scuttling along behind Carter every time Carter is going up to one of these gods saying, you should go home, you should really go home. And the Shantak is there just flapping its wings going, yeah, yeah, listen to him. Or with its uh, horse-looking head going, nah! God knows. With the last warning to avoid the gulf of madness that lies within the void, the figure bids Carter farewell, telling him, Pray to all space that you never meet me in my thousand other forms. Farewell, Randolph Carter, and beware, for I am Nialatotep, the crawling chaos. Insert moustache-twirling villain moment here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Carter actually seems pretty unimpressed by that at the time, doesn't he? I mean, after all, the build-up of him, oh, yeah, I might bump into Nyarlathotep. He's a bit scary. I don't want to meet Nyarlathotep. And is oh, by the way, I'm Nyarlathotep. Yeah, OK, toodles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think he, he was fortunate to meet him in that form, I guess. Yeah, this wasn't the bloody tongue or uh, the bloated woman. It was a guy that looks like a pharaoh. The Shantak shoots screamingly into space, heading for Vega. Carter senses great polypus horrors sliding darkly past, and unseen bat wings beat multitudinous around him. As they travel deeper into space, Carter hears a lovely melody. It was a song, but not the song of any voice. Night and the Spheres sang it, and it was old when space and Nalathotep and the other gods were born. That's one of the nicest ways I've heard that cacophony of um, <laughs> inducing madness be described. Mm. I think it's more sinister that it's actually a pleasing tune that's coming from all these horrors. The contrast there between the horrors it represents and the fact that it actually sounds beautiful and ancient and majestic is much better than, oh, is a cacophony that drives you mad. Carter realises to his horror that the Shantak is carrying him to Infinity's centre. What? (laughs) (laughs) Infinity has a middle, folks. Don't worry about it. That is lifted straight from the story, Paul. Straight from the story. (laughs) I wasn't questioning your notes, Scott. (laughs) I mean, it's not supposed to necessarily make rational sense. Where bubbles and blasphemes the mindless demon sultan Azathoth the Shantak titters as it takes him towards unlighted chambers beyond time. So finally, after having that description almost copy-pasted how many dozen times, we finally get to see the place, or at least it'd be a reference going to it. We're promised that we're going to see it, but we don't. Hurtling to his doom, Carter thinks back to Nealthotep's words, telling him how his dream city was moulded, crystallised and polished by years of memory and dreaming, and that to find it he need only to turn back to the thoughts and visions of his wistful boyhood. And this is why you shouldn't monologue, because you give the PCs ideas. Yeah, this feels a bit like, well, Mr. Bond, before I kill you, I'm going <laughs> to tell you my secret plan. You know, Nalathotep <laughs> basically told him how to get out of this. I've read this story multiple times now, and I keep getting different impressions of what Nalathotep is up to. On the surface, it does seem to be, oh, yeah, all right, get on the Shantak, I'll send you off to the, your city, and, oh, but, ha, 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 secretly, I'm going to send you off to meet Asathoth and drive you mad. But, as you say, he has given Carter everything he needs to get out of the situation and to come to the realisations about what is important, that his dream that he's been looking for has been in the waking world all along. You could make an argument, I'd say, that Nyarlathotep is being an entirely helpful figure here, that being a trickster, all right, he's put Carter through this fairly hellish journey to bring him to this realisation, but ultimately he has given Carter exactly what he was looking for. Yeah, I can see it as being a bit of a double-edged interpretation. The way I'd kind of, it struck with me, was that he's kind of twisting the knife by saying, yeah, your gods aren't here and it's all your fault. Mm. And he's explaining why it's his fault. But in that explanation, he gives Carter the way to avoid his own fate. So my comment still stands. This is why bad guys shouldn't monologue. (laughs) Yeah. 
But it's not just giving Carter a way to avoid the fate that he set up for him. It is very much bringing Carter the resolution he needs to his quest. Nyarlathotep has made that happen for him. And that is, I'd say, him being helpful. Yeah, I didn't really read it that way. I mean, I think it's the twist at the end of the tale, really, that he's using that to taunt Carter to get him to to buy into the plan, Mm. and that goes wrong. I think it reads both ways, and that's one of the things I like about this ending, that you can come away from it just thinking that Nyarlathotep is a moustache-twirling bad guy, or that he is some sort of psychic guide upon Carter's dream quest, ultimately proving both harmful and helpful, but affecting transformation. Clutched in a nightmare where sightless feelers poured and slimy snouts jostled and nameless things tittered and tittered and tittered, Carter reminds himself that he is only dreaming and that his wonderful city of memories lies in the waking world. It was there all along. But I'd love that description with the sightless feelers pouring and the tittering, tittering, tittering of nameless things. That is really quite creepy. Where's Frankie Howard when you need him? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, God, I'm going to have to put an explanation to the show notes for our American listeners, aren't I? And also for anyone under the age of 40. (laughs) Well, I don't know if he made it over to the States or not. I mean, people like Benny Hill did, so who knows? I don't think Frankie Howard ever did. No, maybe not. You've got to have that classic picture of him going, ooh, why was that kind of expression that you always (laughs) had? Eons reeled, universes died and were born again, stars became nebulae and nebulae became stars, and still Randolph Carter fell through those endless voids of sentient blackness. As I was reading this, I was sort of thinking of the scene near the end of 2001, Mm. when the ship is travelling through all those weird, fantastic kind of special effects and sounds and that whole thing of this kind of cosmic turmoil and rebirth and everything is kind of going on. As the cosmos churns around Carter, he begins to sense light and wind and firmament again. There were gods and presences and wills, beauty and evil, and the shrieking of noxious night robbed of its prey. Stars swelled to dawns, and dawns burst into fountains of gold, carmine and purple. And still the dreamer fell. Cries rent the ether as ribbons of light beat back the fiends from outside. And hoary nodens raised a howl of triumph when Nyarlathotep, close on his quarry, stopped baffled by a glare that seared his formless hunting horrors to grey dust. Randolph Carter had indeed descended at last the wide marmorial flights to his marvellous city, for he was come again to the fair New England world that had wrought him. So to the organ chords of the morning's myriad whistles, and dawn's blaze thrown dazzling through purple panes by the great gold dome of the state house on the hill, Randolph Carter leaped shoutingly awake within his Boston room. 
Birds sang in hidden gardens, and the perfume of trellised vines came wistful from arbours his grandfather had reared. Beauty and light glowed from classic mantle and carven cornice and walls grotesquely figured, while a sleek black cat rose yawning from hearthside sleep that his master's start and shriek had disturbed. And, vast infinities away, past the gate of deeper slumber and the enchanted wood and the garden lands and the serenarian sea and the twilight reaches of Inganok, the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep strode broodingly into the onyx castle atop unknown Kadath in the cold waste and taunted instantly the mild gods of earth whom he had snatched abruptly from their scented revels in the marvellous sunset city. And he would have gotten away with it if it weren't for that pesky Carter. <laughs> is it just me, or is there an echo at the ending of A Christmas Carol in that? It just felt a bit like Scrooge waking up after the revelations of that the ghosts have brought to him and seeing the world in a new way on Christmas morning, that you know, you have Carter waking from his momentous dream after having been tormented by Nyarlathotep as suddenly seeing the world around him as his dream city. Yeah, I didn't really get the Christmas Carol vibe from it. I've also seen reference to it being like the end of Wizard of Oz as well, mm. where the choice is to return home. But yeah, it's a great ending. Yeah, it really is. And again, Lovecraft could really craft some lovely prose when he wanted to. And I think there are parts of that that are genuinely beautiful. I do like the image, that closing line of Nalathotep strode broodingly into the Onyx Castle. Because he's not berating Carter, he's berating the, or as he said, taunting the mild gods of Earth. Just that almost kind of humanising aspect of him, where even though a plan may or may not have come to the ending he wanted, that he's still there. Mm. And just, again, just echoes of that bopping his master's head from the line in the uh, Fungi from Yogoth sonnet. Mm. I just like the idea that he's almost like a shepherd and all these mild gods of earth are his sheep and he's going around corralling them and taunting them and playing with them just partly out of duty and partly because it amuses him or is a way of him venting. And ultimately, he doesn't actually get to meet these gods, does he? Carter doesn't. No, he doesn't, yeah. That wasn't the, the goal of his quest, the ultimate goal at least, but the way he thought he would realise his quest was to meet these gods and petition them. And ultimately, yes, we never actually see them. Mm. But what we do see very briefly in this description is hunting horrors. I'd forgotten they came from here mm. Mm. because these were one of the first monsters I ever used in Call of Cthulhu because they appeared in the first scenario I ever ran, a published scenario. And I've always had a bit of a fondness for them because the description of them in Call of Cthulhu is really quite creepy, just these giant flying worm-like things with either one or two wings. It was the one-winged ones that always captured my imagination, just because I liked the idea of these giant dragon-like things almost just flying around in a single wing. Mm. Yeah, and it shows us how 
some very small references in stories, as we saw with the Spiders of Lang. Mm. I'm not sure if they're expanded upon in somebody else's story, but they're not particularly in this story. And the game takes those little references and somebody has written those up for the game. And obviously you've got to give them a description and as well as stats and so on, but a description and kind of bring them to life for use in the game. And there are myriad things like this that... Mm that we know and love, but the actual source material is quite thin for them. And it's a reminder that, as we've said any number of times in the podcast, if you want to go back and retool these things and reinvent them, then by all means you do that. Because sure, people have written up stat blocks and descriptions and so on for the hunting horrors in Call of Cthulhu. But looking at this reference here, you know, it is just a reference to formless hunting horrors. That is it. All we know about this mm. is that they serve Nyarlathotep and they're formless. So you can make them whatever you want. So, now that we've reached the end of DreamQuest of Unknown Kadath, looking back at the whole thing, what do we make of it? Oh, I quite liked it. It's a great piece to expand upon bits of the dreamlands that have only been referenced or hinted at, but also bring in some places, some good old classics that we've seen previously, like Ulthar and so on, and connect to some of the other dreamland stories like the other gods. Because Barzai the Wise, I believe, gets a name check towards the end of this in Nilathotep's big monologue. And earlier as well, yeah. He comes up a few times mm -hmm. in this. So, yeah, to me, it's the, the central dreamland story that everything else kind of is like a spokes on a wheel, that they all connect up to this. And, yeah, this is the big travel log that I think is pretty much key for anyone who wants to run a dreamland story, I think, should have to read this. Mm to get an idea of the sense of the wider world and also be inspired by it because there's, again, so many little bits that aren't fully fleshed out, like that big old door that we mentioned in the previous episode. Things like that that are just left tantalisingly unresolved that a GM can run with and craft their own story from. If you were running a game based here in the Dreamlands, some of the places are just names, mm -hmm. or there's a bronze door, or there's lots of place names that are mentioned that aren't expanded upon, but they sound evocative, or we maybe just get one line about them. And even I think if you were going for some of the top tier places like Celepheus, casting my mind back, I'm not really sure how much description do we really get of those places, you know? Yeah, not much. We get a bit of description of Dilithaline. Uh, we get a bit of description of Ulthar, but maybe not as much as in the Cats of Ulthar bit of description of the Enchanted Wood, but in each of these cases, it's like a few paragraphs. I guess the place we probably get the most description of is Sarkomand, and even then, it's not much. It's not a lot, is it? And I was thinking about this in terms of why the Dreamlands isn't as well used as it might be in role-playing games, and I think this is why, really, because it is such a strange place that if you're going to use it, you need to do a lot of the legwork yourself. Whereas if you're using Lovecraft's stories that are set in the real world, you know, around, well, albeit fictional places, but, you know, like New England, we can look back to that. It's actually exists in the real world. Yes, Innsmouth doesn't exist and Arkham doesn't exist, but we know what towns like those are like, and we've got the geography and the surrounding history. So there's a whole rich world of real life that's there that we can 
use in our games. We've got the most detailed setting you can have. And Lovecraft doesn't necessarily give us that in his stories, but it's there. You know, Mm. that's where the stories are set. Whereas when you go to the Dreamlands, all you've got is what's on the page in this story and, you know, a few other stories. But on the one hand, great, you can make up lots of stuff. But on the other hand, you've got to make up a lot of stuff. It's not a blank canvas, but there's not a lot there to work with. I think it's powerful because it's evocative that it creates themes you can play with and it gives you imagery that you can expand upon. And certainly when I've used the Dreamlands, I've played very much with that. I haven't tried to reproduce at all what Lovecraft has done. I've taken things in very different directions, but I've really played with some of the building blocks that he's put there and used them in different ways. And I find that for me, this is the perfect level of inspiration. I love fantasy stories and backgrounds and so on that basically give me a map with evocative names and a few hints and a few vague folk tales or whatever that I can then expand upon and and riff on and so on. Where I find it stultifying is where for every single square inch of the map, you suddenly have 500 pages of description and canon and history and so on. And if I want to spend that much time learning about a setting, I'll study actual history. But the Dreamlands not only have that vagueness them, but they're also mutable. This is the thing that we keep getting told throughout the story, that there are people who can reshape them, that they change over time, that there are all these hidden corners that lead off to other places, that there are other dreamlands that are shaped by other minds. This means that it is, as you said, Paul, a blank canvas that you can do just about anything with, but it's A canvas that comes with suggestions, it comes with ideas, it comes with inspiration. And I don't find that paralyzing the same way that a completely blank canvas would be. Oh, no, it gives you some flavor, but it's like being asked to write a story and you're just given a couple of lines of evocative description and then go off and write a story about it. That gives you a starting point and it gives you something to work on and it's I like it. It's great. Mm. But my point being that I think that is a lot of work for a GM to work with. And if you want to work with it like you've just described, then great. You know, knock yourself out. That's great. But there are pros and cons to it, I guess. But as a story, I think I do enjoy it. I mean, there are parts of it when I've read it before, as I said on one of the episodes, that I do find myself kind of glazing mm. over a bit and I have to sort of refocus my mind on what's going on on the page just because it seems to it's very much this kind of travel monologue in places lists of adjectives and nouns that can just end up kind of washing over you a bit and you have to pay quite close attention sometimes as to how he's getting from one place to another because it's not Mm. just a linear geographical travel you know he's going below into an underworld and then popping up and then going off to the moon and then coming back and I've never actually read it with reference to the map, Mm. which has been drawn, but it'd be interesting to do that. I I was thinking towards the end of it, I've kind of avoided it before, but I wonder actually if that might help me mentally sort of form better images of of a kind of a geography of it for myself. 
because as it is, when I read it, it's just a sort of scattergun of various places that I don't really put together in my mind particularly well. I've never really considered following the map either, and I'm not sure I'd really want to because for me, the dreamlands should probably defy a map. I don't like the idea that they can be mapped. No, I've always felt the same previously, but just at the end of this time, I sort of was because I was looking through the Dreamlands book and looking at the map. On the one hand, I think these things are mutable and you could move these things around. On the other hand, in the story, he does describe them. I think whoever's made the map has, has mm. paid close attention to the story and, and the way these places relate. There is a geography to them, at least to some aspects of them. Hmm. But in terms of a story, for many years, this was my favourite Lovecraft story. I'm not sure that it still is. It's a, still a strong contender, but I don't know. It's a toss-up between this and The Colour Out of Space. But it's certainly the one that I find most inspirational. I agree, Paul, that there are bits of it which are... I was about to say dull, but that's not fair. No, not dull. There's bits of it that feel very, I don't know, superficial, that you just sort of glide over. But mm. in terms of story, in terms of action, I think this is actually one of Lovecraft's richest stories. There's so much that goes on in it. I mean, it is quite a long story, but it contains probably as much action as the rest of Lovecraft's fiction put together. It introduces so many weird elements and wild places and strange concepts that it feels like the absolute zenith of his creativity in terms of just throwing ideas down on the page. Now, how successfully he brought all those together is a matter for debate, particularly, as he was saying, with some of them feeling very superficial. But just as a work of creativity, I find this absolutely awe-inspiring. And also, I think as a reader, if you've read his other stories, there's a lot of things that recur in this tale. Mm. Significantly, we meet Pickman again, a character from a previous story. And we're meeting Carter again, because he's been in previous tales, and King Karanis, Azathoth and Nalathotep we've had before. So there's a lot here. And I think that lends a strength to this story because of the reincorporation of things that have previously been established in other tales. Yeah, I think the depiction of Nyarlathotep here in particular is probably what defines him as an entity within the mythos, mm. much more so than the prose poem that carries his name or the fungi from Yogurt. Certainly, I remember a while back talking to Cuppy Cup when he was wanting potentially to use Nyarlathotep as an entity and aid Slade nobody, and he was asking me for ideas as to what he should riff on. And this was the story I pointed him towards, the depiction of Nyarlathotep at the end. For me, if you're dealing with Nyarlathotep in a human guise, this is the best foundation you can have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And also, le leaving through the Dreamlands Call of Cthulhu book, there's an extended essay about this story in there that dissects it and picks up on ideas in it and so on, which I found quite interesting. So maybe we'll go back and look at some of the other stories that feature Randolph Carter, because he does appear in quite a few tales, but this is his 
ultimate story, really. And also potentially some of the other ones about the Dreamlands. Because you mentioned before, Matt, about how this was like the hub that all the other Dreamland stories fed into. But obviously the other Dreamland stories came first. This was like the one that brought them all together and wove them into a tapestry. Yeah, it might be worth going back at some point in the future and just looking at the other ones, because they are all fairly short, and looking at how they served as the foundation for what would eventually become the definitive work of the Dreamlands. Mm. Well, maybe a good time to do that would be when Chaosium bring out the new Dreamlands book. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed the podcast at any stage. And we have a number of new backers to thank by name. Yep, starting off with a thanks to Xander Ford. And thank you also to Michael Reed. And thank you very much to Patricio Gonzaga. And thanks to Darren Chandler, who has risen to the exclusive $20 level on our Patreon of Hasta Pussycat Kill Kill. <laughs> yes, I remember him talking about that on the Discord server, being delighted by the name of it. So thank you very much, Darren. Uh, the pledge level that should not be named. <laughs> and thank you also to Patrick Corcoran. And of course, we'll put the normal caveat in here. If we have mangled any of your names, please do let us know and we'll do better next time. Also, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where you get podcasts or just mentioning it to people on social media or in passing. Perhaps leave cryptic little notes and hide them around places that you visit. That will confuse and maybe delight people, but we'll settle for confuse. Well, tell people about it in your dreams, mm -hmm. but tell them about <laughs> it in real life as well okay because <laughs> you know that'll only get us so far all right well you've been listening to the good friends of jackson elias and until next time it's a goodbye from me and cheerio from me and farewell from me hello blasphemous tomes.com mm -hmm.